yeah, can we just play that song real quick again? Bump, 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 bump. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, hey, uh, I just think about those lyrics this morning when I'm thinking about uh, that, that phrase of just like lay your burden down upon him, lay your burden down upon him. And I don't know about you, uh, but there's times this week in particular, this season in particular, where it feels like there's a lot of extra burden and there's a lot that I could just say, Jesus, just take this. I need to lay it down upon you. And you know, one of the things that I think, you know, in this season that's been interesting, that there's this kind of an added, bur- added burden. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but 2020 has had lots of rules and regulations, lots of policies, lots of protocols, and uh, I'm not talking about the validity of those things right now, by the way. I just want to acknowledge the weight of those things. And every store you go into, there's a list of rules on the door. Here's what you need to do. Here's how far you need to stand from everybody else. Uh, regulations about where you can go, when you can go there, regulations about how many people you can hang out with, rules about how far you can stand from someone. Everywhere you go has got these lists of rules and protocols, and it's just, it can feel weighty, right? It can feel weighty as we kind of carry those things. Is this going to keep bumping maybe? Let's see if I, um, how's that? Is it hitting? We'll see. All right, we'll make an adjustment as needed, but um, you know, these things may seem strange to us, but it really had me thinking about some really strange laws. And uh, I don't know if you ever played the game Trivial Pursuit. I think it's Trivial Pursuit. It might not be the game. But there's this category for um, strange laws and uh, strange microphones. Um, we'll figure. All right, let's try this. Okay. Uh, so well, there's this category for strange laws, and I just wanted to see how good you guys would be at this category this morning. So we're going to do something a little bit interactive. This is either a law or not a law. If you believe it's a law, just put up your hand, all right, and, uh, and we'll see how many of these that we get right, all right? So here's law number one. Um, and sorry about you Bigfoot hunters out there, but in uh, some county in Washington passed a law in 1969 deeming the slaying of Bigfoot to be a felony and punishable by five years in prison. So is that a law or not a law? If you raise your hand, you think that's a law, and you would be correct. And that law was later amended, designating, designating Bigfoot as an endangered species. So there you go. He's out there somewhere, and for those of you that are looking, he's apparently in Shkamenia County, Washington. I don't know. Maybe you could help me, Daniel. I don't know if I got that right. All right, law number two, in the state of Ohio, it is mandated that you must laugh at your pastor's jokes even when they're not funny. Is that a law or not a law? Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. Yeah. See, hey, that's good. You you laugh anyway. I appreciate it. Uh, No, that's not a law, obviously. All right. In Texas, marriages by proxy are perfectly legal. You you think that's a law? Is that not a law? Marriages by proxy, having somebody sub in for you at the altar is perfectly legal. So those of you that said that is a law, it is actually a law. And uh, yeah, sorry, babe, I can't make it. Uh, just I'm going to have my buddy stand in here. Can you imagine how's that conversation going to go? It probably had to do with those that were off at war or whatever, but interesting law. Um, all right, how about this one? Until 2015, Minnesota law limited nursing homes and senior centers to just two days of bingo per week. Two days of bingo, is that a law, is it not a law? Nobody thinks it's a law. They're like, okay, no way. That is actually a law, too. Like, I, I don't know what rowdy what thing was going on, and some of these nurses like, hey, no, that bingo just gets out of hand. Like, wait, two days, that's it. That's all you got. I'm sorry. 
Uh, but I, I think it was, it, it's no longer a law, hopefully. Um, okay, how about this one? It is prohibited in the state of Kentucky to cheer for the Duke Blue Devils. Law or not a law? Jess says it's a law. I, I feel like it should be a law. It's actually not a law. Um, all right, how about this one? Louisiana law states that individuals involved in bear wrestling matches uh, defined as a match or contest between one or more persons and a bear for the purpose of fighting or engaging in a physical altercation. In case you didn't know what a bear wrestling match is, that's what it is, and it is prohibited uh, in Louisiana. Law or not a law? This is a law. You're like, you can't make that one up. Like, that, that's what, what in the world is that? I don't know. I don't know what that law was all about, but we are talking about today, as we dive a little bit deeper into the book of Galatians, we're talking about law, and more specifically, not just individual laws, but we're really talking about the law system. And it, throughout Jewish culture, they were under the system of the law, and the law was really set up for them that they might have a route to, to God. So it was a protective thing for them to know kind of the boundaries of right living with God. And so it was established for their benefit. But when Christ came, he said that he was the fulfillment of the law. And so, uh, so those laws, that, that contract was no longer binding on the Christian community. But at the heart of Galatians is something that Paul was deeply passionate about. There is nothing, in fact, that he was more passionate about. You want to pick a fight with Paul, you distort the gospel. That's how you pick a fight with Paul really, really quick is you start to add to the gospel. And Stephen talked about this last week about and gave you some background about the book of Galatians, but what was happening in the Galatian church is there was this infiltration, this false te teaching that was adding rules and requirements on top of the simple truth of the gospel. And there was this group called Judaizers, or they were often referred to as the circumcision party. Uh, sorry if you wanted to, to start a group called the circumcision, it's already taken. Um, but what they were trying to do is they were trying to revert people back to old Jewish norms. And they were trying to say, hey, it's not enough to just be Christian. It's not enough to just trust in the cross of Christ and to live a life uh, committed to him. But also you have to be circumcised, for example. And so they would lay that on these Christians, specifically these Gentile Christians that were Greek by background. And so they hadn't come through. Uh, they, they, they had no ties to, to Jewish tradition. And they, they saw them as sort of inferior to the faith. And so they were saying it's not enough to just have Jesus. You must add in this requirement, this requirement, this custom, this protocol, this regulation. And so they were placing this burden upon people that God was not placing upon them. And so Paul is like, all right, you messed with the gospel, and so I'm going to write this letter out. And we're going to straighten some things out. We're going to straighten some people out. And this was really, he's, he's fired up. You can imagine just the passion in this letter. And there was this, you're only a Christian kind of stuff. You're only a Christian if kind of stuff really going around. And so Paul puts these false teachers on blast. And Stephen covered some of this last week, but I want to read it again. Galatians 1, 6 through 9 says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but uh, there are some of you who, some, some, some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel of heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach, let him be accursed. So he's like, I'm going to drop some curses on these folks here. If you're going to add to the gospel, may you be accursed. And as we've said before, so I now say it again, if anyone is preaching a gospel 
contrary to the one that you received, let him be a curse. And so what he's saying is, this is the most sacred thing we have. This is everything. And so if anybody, even an angel comes down to you and says, there's a different gospel, let that person be a curse because they're leading people astray. And so what Paul then does, does from here, there's a lot of background we've got to work through here so that you can fully understand the context of what we're getting into. But the first part of Galatians, if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. We're going to be looking at all of Galatians chapter 2 today. But the first part of Galatians in verses 1 through 10 is really Paul saying, okay, I'm calling out some false teachers. Let me let you know why I'm an authority on the topic. And he's got some pretty good credentials. <laughs> The first is that I was called and commissioned by Christ himself. So we might say, so I was actually on the road to Damascus. You know that story, Acts chapter 9. It's an incredible story. Paul is, um, he, he is actually a terrorist of his time, really a, a Jewish extremist that is continuing to persecute the Christian church. Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus, 180, transformed. And saved by God, the most unlikely person, saved by the grace of God, and now he's preaching and proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus and the grace of God. And so he's like, I was called and commissioned by Christ himself. Jesus showed up to me. So number one, that's why I am a credible source on this topic. Number two, I sat exclusively under the teaching and training of Jesus for three years. And this is one that I didn't know, but it was referenced a little bit in the last chapter that we covered. And I hadn't really thought about it. But he, some say that this was his three years of training, much like the rest of the apostles had their three years of training. How that specifically looked, I don't know. I just know that he was being discipled by and trained by Jesus and his, his concept of the gospel and uh, teaching of the gospel was really framed by Jesus himself. And so he's like, so uh, I don't know if you've heard of him, but I studied under uh, Jesus. And you're like, okay, I, yeah, yeah, I get, we'll listen to you. That's good. That's good enough for us. Number three, he said, I went and preached the gospel to the Gentiles for 14 years. So I was preaching and planning churches when y'all were in diapers, all right? So I've been doing this for a long time, and let me just let you know I'm an authority on the topic for that reason. And the fourth thing, he said, upon returning to Jerusalem, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't running or laboring in vain, and so I connected up with the rest of the apostle team, and they confirmed and gave me the authority to teach what I've been teaching. Not only did Jesus commission me and call me, the, the apostles confirmed it. And so he's like, this is what makes me an authority, and nobody would dispute those things. And so after he lays his credentials out, he then takes aim at a specific person. It was somebody that you would least expect him to take aim at. Because someone within their own ranks had fallen under the pressure of the Judaizers and was buying into and really kind of living out some of these false teachings. And so, and really leading others astray. And that person, you wouldn't expect it to be this person, is Cephas, who he's about to call out, who's Peter. I mean, we're talking Peter who, you know, walked with Jesus Peter. Peter, on my, uh, on this rock I will build my church and on this gospel, and, and you're going to go out, and you're going to establish this. So this is the Peter that we're talking about. And so Paul said even he, well-intended, we can assume, because a lot of times these traps that we fall into uh, are well-intended. The trap that we're going to talk about today, which is really legalism, and then on the other side, this trap of lawlessness. Both of these, I think sometimes we fall into with well-intentions. Peter's like, I, I just, I'm trying to do the right thing. We can, we can we can think that maybe he just felt that pressure. He's trying to do the right thing. Either way, he felt the pressure of the circumcision party. And so what was happening was where previously he would go and eat with the Gentiles, he'd share meals with them. He would eat the things that they're eating. 
now he was, and, and when the, the, the circumcision party was around, he was like, oh, I really shouldn't eat that. You know, I can't. You know, he, he, was, he was eating the pork, and then, you know, he's like, you know, let's get some bacon. And then he's like, no, no, I, I can't. I can't. I can't do that over here. And so what Paul is calling out is Peter's hypocrisy. He's saying, not, this is dangerous not just for you, but everybody's looking to you, Peter. And this is a dangerous path, this path of legalism to lead him into, to think that these restrictions, these regulations, actually could merit our right standing before God. And so it says this, and this is going to feel really direct, and in fact it was, and Paul often was very direct, it says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. It's like, okay, you know, like, again, don't mess with the gospel. I'm going to oppose you to your face. It sounds harsh, but it's better than, like, I'm just going to talk about him behind his back and let you all know. He says, I'm going to oppose him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he drew back and separated himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision party. But when I saw that their conduct, this group and others had kind of fallen into that with him, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said before them all. So not only does he call Peter out, but he does it like in the front of the group. He's like, you know, hey, you publicly are misleading people, so now I have to publicly correct you. And so he does that. And so it says in front of them all, he says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Jew, or live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews. Saying, Peter, you're, you're being a hypocrite. You're, you're living like the Gentiles. You've, you've lived with the Gentiles. And that's okay, but why are you now forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews? Why are you adding this burden onto their shoulders that God never intended for them to carry? And so he'd fallen into this pressure. And there's a word here. Uh, it's, it is not in step. They were not in step with the truth. Orthopedeo. And it's, it's, it's this word that really is, it comes, our word orthopedic comes from this word in the Greek. And it really is, he was out of line. He had veered off the path. He was misaligned. And uh, I remember, and some of you remember, some of you around when I, like, destroyed my ankle playing softball. And that thing was pointed in a completely different direction. Anybody that saw it was like, couldn't eat lunch for like the next month. It was very disgusting and very it was rough, like the, this part of my uh, ankle was in the middle and my toe was pointing back this way. And I knew there was going to be a moment, that, and I was nervous the whole time that it was going to happen. I didn't know when it was going to happen. I, I, I knew that at some point that foot needed to be put back in place. I couldn't just live the rest, and I didn't want to. I was like, I'm in so much pain right now. Like imagine if I just tried to like live my life with that leg, like that foot pointing in the other. It wouldn't work. Right? I couldn't even stand up. I couldn't walk. And so I knew, I thought that maybe, the, I didn't know how things work, you know, it's not my field. I thought maybe the, the paramedics would come out and be like, hey, yeah, so um, what do you do for a living? Like, you know, get it real quick, like without me. So I was on guard. I was like rearing in pain, but I was on guard. And so when I got to the hospital, I was like, just give me whatever I need to not feel this, because I know what has to happen here. And so like, I wanted to be insulated from that pain, um, but they had to reset this ankle. And here, what's happening here is, Paul is like, we need to reset some things. It's going to be painful for a minute. This is going to hurt a little bit. Um, and there's no way to kind of inoculate that pain for you. But we need to reset this ankle because this really matters. There's no way to live healthy and to continue on stumbling through life like this or as a church like this. So we have to get back to, we have to reset things to the way that they were intended to be in the simple gospel. And so I think it's easy, again, for us with good intentions to 
for things to get out of place in our life from time to time. For us to fall into these traps of either legalism or lawlessness that we're going to talk about. Legalism being thinking we can earn God's favor by the things we do or don't do. They're like, I can actually earn my merits. Well, and we, a lot of times we, we receive Jesus by grace, but then we step back into legalism and we're like, but now I've got to do this like checklist of things to remain in his good graces and good favor. And on the other side of that, we fall into lawlessness, which is thinking that God's grace is a license to just sin. And we're going to talk about those two things and how we can get caught into those traps. And we'll let Paul speak uh, for us here. So let's look at these things and how Paul resets uh, our thinking and the thinking of the Galatians. In Galatians 2, 15 through 16, and this is part of that conversation that he's having now where he's called out Peter and then he goes into, we don't know when the conversation with Peter start, stops exactly. We just know this is all part of his same discourse, the same point. And so then he says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, so he's sort of allowing their point for a minute to say, okay, you say the, the Gentiles are sinful. We are Jews by birth. No, though, that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too, we need the cross just as much as they do. We too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one. And so we say, hey, y'all think you're real high and mighty. they like, because you did this thing or... You, 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 you were circumcised. You think that that, is, that merits this kind of special status for you. Let me just clear things up for you for just a second. Nobody will be justified under the law. So what Paul's saying simply is the law can't save us. The system of the law can't save us. In fact, the only way to be justified under the law is to keep it perfectly. To not slip up in any area of the law at any time in our life. That's the only way to be justified under the law. And what Paul's saying is, we tried that. It didn't work. Don't you remember? I mean, this was our, this was our story. This was our journey. It didn't work. We strive for righteousness. But the only way to be saved, again, was to keep it perfectly. We're all lawbreakers. We're all offenders. So by the works of the law, no one is justified. And this word justified is important here. It's actually a legal term which means to be declared not guilty. That we can actually, by faith in Christ, be declared not guilty, though we know that we have guilt in our past. We know that we have sin in our past. We know that we deserve to be condemned. And so what he's saying is, listen, the law just speaks condemnation over us. And we don't want to go back there. Do you want to step back into condemnation? We can't win with that. But Jesus declares us by the power of faith in Christ, we are declared not guilty. I read a, um, I love to read biographies. I love to read history. You guys know this. But one of the, the biographies I read uh, was a biography of Martin Luther. It's all about the Protestant Reformation. And not to get in too much into the weeds of that, um, but this is kind of where Protestantism kind of veered off of Catholicism and Martin Luther was really a pivotal figure in this um, moment in history. And Martin Luther, what I didn't realize, I knew some of that backstory, but I didn't realize on a personal level what Martin Luther went through. Because he had just, more than anything else, he just wanted to live this righteous life. And so he tried to do everything he could to earn that righteous life. And he actually lived this life that was just crippled by fear of God's condemn condemnation. And so he lived this life of fear. In fact, it led to this just sinking depression. And he, would, he dealt with this throughout much of his life, but especially his life 
uh, prior to a discovery that he would make. And so at one point in time, he actually has this moment of breakthrough where he studies the scripture for himself. He, he digs in deep. And he understands that when Romans talks about the righteousness of God, it talks about that it's something that's been imputed upon us, meaning that it is like, it, my, my uh, professor used to tell me that it's like just funds being transferred into your account. And so Jesus just transfers his righteousness to us because of what he did on the cross. And so he understood then, and Martin Luther understood that, this righteousness was not from his own. This was a righteousness that was from Jesus. It was based on Jesus' merit, and this really became the turning point for himself. And Eric Metaxas, who, who uh, is the, the author of Luther's uh, biography, I love how he captures this moment for, and this realization for Luther. He says, This holy and loving God dared touch our lifeless and rotting essence. And in doing so, underscored that this is the truth about us. In fact, we are not sick and in need of healing. We are dead and in need of resurrecting. We are not dusty in need of a good dusting. We are fatally befouled with death and fatally toxic filth and require total redemption. We need justification. And only the cross of Jesus, only the gospel has the power to justify us. Paul reminds Peter, he says, listen, we can't save ourselves through adherence to the law or virtue. It doesn't matter how virtuous you are, you will always fall short. Instead, we should point back to the power of Jesus. That's the only power to save. And I think that those, or, or we, when we don't fully understand the gospel, we lose our grasp on the gospel, we start saying things like, look at me. And there's this thing that's very common, it's not new, it happened in Jesus' day too, but there's this thing, maybe you heard of like virtue signaling where we like to appear like really virtuous, and we like to say things like, well, hey, you'd be more of a Christian if you did this thing, or if you responded to this issue in this way, or if you looked at this person in this way, or said this thing, or did this thing, or hey, I, look at, I, you know, you're only a good Christian if you go on these mission trips, or you do whatever it is, fill in the blank, but there is this tendency in us to revert back to a, and we like to, we like to say, look at us for a second. Look at how virtuous, and this is what happened with the Judaizers. It's like, hey, look at us. We, we were circumcised. Like, we love, we love God more. That's just. But what Paul is doing is he's leveling the playing field. He's saying, no, 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 listen. It's, I don't care how virtuous you are. It's not your virtue that puts you in right standing before God. And so rather than saying, look at us, look at how virtuous we are, we should say, look at God. Look at how merciful he is. Look at God. Look at how merciful he is. Jesus tells of two men who prayed to God, a Pharisee who prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. Talk about virtue signaling. Like, look at me. And then there was this tax collector. He couldn't even lift his head to heaven. Beating his breast, he prayed to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. We are only justified as we humble ourselves before God and say, I can't do this. There's nothing I could do to earn my favor with you. But the good news is God's already done it. He's done it on the work, through the work of the cross. Paul's second important assertion is that not only is the law 
powerless to save us, but the law cannot change us. And he goes on in verse 19 to say, For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. He's saying, listen, I I died to that old system. I'm not living for that old system anymore. Instead, I'm living for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And sometimes I think we overcorrect in trying to steer away from the legalistic pit, and we steer the other direction and overcorrect in the other way, and we say, well, it doesn't really matter what I do. I mean, Jesus already died for me, right? So like, I can just, I can live however I want. But Paul says, no, he says, I died to the law. Why? So that I could live for God. That's why I died to the law. Why would I want to live a life that was apart from God? I died to the law so that I could live for God. Not so that I can fall into the pit on the other side of the road and live this life of lawlessness. But the law can't change us. The law can inform us. The law can uh, give us good principles. The law can expose our wicked ways. The law can pronounce condemnation. The law can sometimes produce good God-led conviction. The law may in some ways develop a life of sin management where it's like, hey, I just, if I could just. But the one thing that the law cannot do, it can't save us and it can't change the human heart. How many times has your heart been changed by the rules where you're like, man, like I, these rules, like I just, I love these rules. It, the opposite happens a lot where you finally just give up. You're like, I, I forget it. I can't even, I can't keep up with all these rules. So we get discouraged. But when we understand the power of the gospel, it actually empowers us to live the way that we were meant to live. Only the gospel can produce true transformation. Only the gospel can bring justification. Only the the Um, Only the gospel can create genuine fruit in the life of believers. Only the the Bible, or sorry, only the gospel brings regeneration, which is really this like heart transplant. So not just justification, but regeneration, which is this heart transplant. Only the gospel brings sanctification, which changes us into the likeness of God. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was a religious leader that came to Jesus at one point, and he was trying to live by the letter of the law. He was trying to do all the right things, but something was still missing, and so he seeks Jesus out, and Jesus tells him, truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. you got to be born again. you got to die to that old self. you got to start all over again, and you got to be born into Christ. And so Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And the truth for us is that the beginning of real change is at the end of ourselves. The point where we can come to the end of ourselves and say, I'm done trying to earn it. I'm done trying to live however I want to live. Instead, coming to the end of myself, I just want to begin there. The beginning of real change is at the end of ourselves. We're kind of in between houses right now, and uh, our house is coming along. I've been kind of sharing that saga with you guys. But I don't recommend living in, like, in between houses. Like, every week it's been great because people have, like, provided places for us to go, and God's been so gracious in that, and our church family has been so supportive in that and helpful. But it's like the end of vacation every week. Like, you gotta, like we have a lot of stuff. We got a lot of bad. We pack everything up. And then, you know, there's just this weird sense of, like, I don't really know where we belong. Like, we, there's no place to land, you know. And there's sometimes a tendency as I'm driving along to, like, want to drive back to that old house and be like, that's, that's my house. And our boys are even like, oh, can we go back to the old house? You know, like, like, well, no, it's not our house anymore. We can't go back there. And I think that 
Sometimes we do the same thing in our life. We're tempted to drive back down that old street, go back to that old house, but we don't live there anymore. That's the old life. We died to that life. We don't live a life of lawlessness anymore. We live a life that has made its home in Christ. And I think even worse than just living that life, going back to that old house, is living in between, living in no man's land. And say, well, I'm kind of living for God, you know, and I'm kind of living for me. Instead, we gotta, we got to recognize we have a new home, we have a new residence, and we live in Christ and he lives in us. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How would we live in it anymore? And the last thing I want to press into here is this. God's grace, and hopefully we've already hit this over and over again, God's grace, the gospel, it's enough. It's everything that we need. Paul says, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. What's he saying? The cross is either everything or it's nothing. Because if you could earn your way to God all by yourself, what did Jesus die for? So the cross is either everything or it's nothing. We believe that it's everything. I heard one of these good news stories here just recently, and, you know, there's a lot of news here just like, oh, man, another story, another, you know, it's just exhausting. But there's some, like, good news. I try to find the good news stories that are coming along, the things that, you know, provide some hope. And uh, there's a story about this doctor in India. And on August 9th, Dr. Sankit uh, Mehta, an anesthetist, uh, he was being treated for COVID-19 in India. And what happened was he had hurt someone else in the room really struggling for air like they were really and so he got up out of his bed he took out he's a 71 year old man named Dinesh Parani who was a few beds away from him so Dr. Mehta got out of his bed he realized the urgency of this moment and so he took his own oxygen support out he gathered enough strength to get out of his bed and ventilate this man that was in desperate need of it he knew the team wasn't going to get to him fast enough and because of his self Listen, quick efforts, Parani continues to fight on, continue to live on. And I just love that story, and I love the story of the gospel, which really says that, hey, this is something that somebody else did for me, their own self. And Jesus put his own life on the line. Jesus stepped out and said, I'm willing to give my life for you. And there's no greater love than that, the Bible tells us, than one would lay down their life for their friends. As the band comes up here, we're going to sing a song here in just a moment, but I just want you to picture and really think about, think about your own life, think about the things that you're carrying today, things about, think about the ways that you're still trying to, by sheer effort and striving, make your way to Jesus, and we're going to lay those burdens back down on his shoulders here in just a moment, but the cross is really everything or it's nothing, and I believe that it's everything, and I want to live a life that honors the cross. I want to live a life that finds favor through the cross, that finds victory through the cross, and I believe that you do too. We have this new motivation. It's no longer fear of punishment, fear of condemnation, a life bound by obligation. It's no longer to please or to impress others. It's simply to just love God and respond. Because the cross is everything. As Paul puts it, the life we now live We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. But now we want to live for 
worship him. Most nights before bed, we sing this hymn, uh, and I'm not great at singing. Sometimes we hit a note well, but it's with my kids. We get down, we sing some hymns together, and uh, Eli always says to me, he said, Dad, what's the one uh, white as snow? What's the, let's sing that one. He loves that hymn, and so we sing it together, and we say, you know, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Sin had left a and saying he washed it white as snow. And then we get them all pumped up, and then we get in that Jesus paid it all part, and they're starting to get, like, I'm getting fired up before bed, and, um, you know, and then we just get louder. It's like, oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. And I tell him, what's his name? <laughs> yeah. That's his name. And I love it because they just, they just call out the name of Jesus. And I want them to continue to be fixed on that reality. The beauty of the cross. It's everything. Because Jesus paid my debt. There's another hymn. And actually, Amy sung this hymn at... Uh, uh, my grandmother's funeral, and it was her favorite song, and it's called The Old Rugged Cross. I don't know if any of you know that song. I'm not going to sing it. I'll let her sing it. Um, but I love the words here because it points us back to the power, the simplicity, the eternal hope that's only found in the cross because the cross is everything. It says, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross with the dearest and best, for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down and I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. I do not set aside the grace of God for righteousness could be attained through the law. Christ died for nothing. But the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's sing out those words to old rugged cross. Uh, together as we uh, close. And you guys can go ahead and stand up. Just lay it all at the foot of the cross right now.